News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. Since 1980, more than 1,200 special operations warriors have lost their lives, 1,205. They left behind 989 children. And uh, I want to welcome to the program Sean Corrigan. He's the executive vice president of uh, an organization that has been working to help those kids left behind by those fallen warriors. Special Operations Warrior Foundation is the name of the organization. Specialops.org is their website. Sean, welcome to the show. How are you? Great. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for the uh, opportunity to speak with you and your audience. Sure. So uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the organization and I guess what you do with the organization. Right. So the organization began in 1980 with the uh, attempted hostage rescue operation in Iran, and it's it's grown over the years. Um, since then, originally it was designed to fund the the uh, education of children whose parents were killed in combat, and then it expanded to combat and training, and now it's combat training and and any death while in the line of duty, while serving at U.S. Special Operations Command. And it also expanded from funding college to uh, kind of a cradle-to-career approach to education, including preschool funding, uh, private school tuition assistance, uh, unlimited tutoring from, from two years old through college graduation, uh, paying for college visits and fees, and, of course, college room board miscellaneous expenses, uh, internships, really trying to take a whole uh, holistic approach at supporting these, uh, these children's uh, education based on the service and sacrifice of their parents. How did you get involved with this organization? Well, I knew about the organization while I was uh, in the service. Out of my 30 years in the Army, uh, about 25 or 26 of those years were in special operations. So uh, unfortunately, I get to see the the work of the foundation firsthand as we lost uh, comrades in Iraq and Afghanistan. I saw the good work that they, the foundation was doing. And then when I retired in Tampa, where the Special Operations Warrior Foundation is based, uh, my predecessor was retiring in this job, and, and it was a perfect mission for me to uh, continue to, to serve, uh, even after my time in the military, to be able to give back to those families and, and literally work with the families of uh, some of the men I serve with and to, to see their kids grow up. So it's not just scholarships. Uh, it's also, like you mentioned, internships, uh, because, you know, some, especially nowadays, you know, college is ridiculously expensive. And honestly, I think there's some reassessment going on about whether or not it's it's worth some of that cost. Um, and so you got kids that, that are not interested in going to college uh, but there are other uh, options available to them that that you guys help them with. Absolutely, and that's that's why we look at it as uh, cradle to career. And what we're really trying to do is enable a uh, a meaningful career that that lets these kids be all they can be. So whether that's a, a trade, uh, truck driving, or any any certified program. The idea is to get them to a place where they can they can really have a meaningful career. So, how do people get um, get selected for this? I mean, obviously, 
you guys have uh, you got records that you can uh, find out right uh, as to who actually is eligible. But is it something that you go and make the overture to them or does somebody have to apply to you? Now, there's no application required. We work uh, through the military and uh, upon notification from the military that there's been a casualty within U.S. Special Operations Command. We uh, give the family a little bit of time to, to kind of sort through uh, the grieving process, but within about 30 days, we reach out to the family and explain who we are and what we're offering, and there's, there's no application. Uh, eligibility is automatic based on the, the service member's um, assignment while, uh, when they, they uh, passed. And... Um the uh, the charity itself, uh, I'll give you an opportunity here because I know I always do my research on charities before I ever try to uh, uh, make a donation. So tell us a little bit about uh, the ratings that you guys have uh, that people should feel comfortable making donations to you guys. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we we look to Charity Navigator to uh, to maintain our standards of financial accountability and transparency and We've maintained a, a top four-star rating for uh, 16 years, uh, going on 17 years now. So it, it's very important to us that we're using the money uh, wisely. You know, people donate so we can send these kids to school, so we can take care of the kids. So we're very, um, very cognizant of that and uh, and uh, maintain a, a pretty tight operating ratio, uh, well above 85%, uh, around 89%. Uh, right now towards the program costs. So, um, yeah, stewardship is, is one of our top uh, priorities uh, right behind taking care of the uh, students. Student success is number one to us, but uh, we're also very cognizant that uh, we are responsible to those who are, are helping us do that. You also do work with wounded uh, warriors as well, right? Not the organization, sorry, but, the, uh, but uh, service members. Yes, we do. Uh, and this program began in 2006 when uh, our board recognized the need that there are expenses that the government doesn't cover or can't cover. And so uh, we provide an immediate financial assistance to wounded, ill, and injured members of Special Operations Command. So whether they're wounded in combat, injured in training, or suffer an illness that keeps them away from their home, hospitalized away from their home, uh, we provide a check for $5,000 and an iPad for them to communicate with their family. And uh, that helps cover costs of uh, pretty much anything, whether it's flying a grandparent in to help take care of the kids or to put the dog in a kennel while the, the spouse is visiting them or, or to cover unpaid time off uh, for a spouse that they might need to take some time to be with the service member while they uh, recover. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, uh, this is the, uh, the opportunity to make the, uh, the pitch. You, you need people's support. You need people's help. We do. We do. Um, we have, as you mentioned, 989 children that, that we are uh, committed to supporting, and there's more every, every year. So um, we, we do uh, accept donations, uh, our website is specialops.org. That's www.specialops.org. And uh, there's a lot of different ways to give. Realize 
times are tough for a lot of folks, but um, they're they're also times are tough for these kids who lost uh, lost a parent in the line of duty. And with Memorial Day um, right around the bend, every day is Memorial Day for these families, and and uh, we're here to make sure that uh, that they get the support that that we think their uh, their parents deserve. Sean Corrigan, the Executive Vice President of the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. Again, the website specialops.org. Thank you for your service as well and uh, for what you're doing with this organization, uh, for the work that you guys do, and welcome home. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Pete. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Again, that's specialops.org if you want to help out the nonprofit. I appreciate them making time for us today. Um, we'll go back now to uh, Texas. By the way, that is the uh, that was Beta O'Rourke, Francis Robert, that was apparently called Beto by uh, nobody, and uh, but needed the moniker in his run for office. Anyway... Uh, He disrupted the news conference that is going on right now when it first started. And um, the Uvalde mayor, Don McLaughlin, called him a sick son of a gun. After O'Rourke told Governor Abbott that the shooting is on you, McLaughlin said to O'Rourke, quote, it's on bleep holes like you. Why don't you get out of here? Good job, Beto. By the way, he's running for governor of Texas. I bet this will go over well in his election fight. Um, all right, let's go ahead and uh, go back to this uh, press conference that they're holding that Beto interrupted. I believe evil is a, is a mental health classification. Do you see this as a mental health issue or some kind of biblical battle between evil that's always going to be out there? It, so I'm, I'm a little I'm having trouble reconciling this idea of evil and a mental health issue. So, and very interestingly, in the meeting that we had before coming out here, I raised that exact issue because we talked about mental health. And to, to, to me, someone who is as de- demented as it takes to kill little kids, it goes beyond, seems to me, a mental health issue. I mean, that, that is the sheer face of evil itself. And so, listen, I'm not a doctor. I, I can't classify these things. And I don't know the extent to which mental health would be able to address someone who has the challenges that they would shoot their grandmother and then shoot and kill all these babies, all these young kids. Kind of what was pointed out at the time in our discussion earlier is that there could have been a time earlier in his life when it was a more typical mental health issue that could have been addressed. I don't have any information about that, and maybe others don't either, but is there a difference between a mental health challenge that can be addressed and evil? I don't know. It's a big... Even if you're saying that you think he's evil, shouldn't we be keeping guns out of evil people's hands? Because if it's not fixable through mental health, which you're saying on one hand that it's fixable through mental health, and we have to be, that you start as straight out mental health, mental health. So, you know. And this, this is. This. And, and that oversimplifies things. Like, you know, you said you don't want to oversimplify this, but to just say it's evil seems to oversimplify it. So. 
He well, didn't just it, say, it, it who is this reporter? Is a meaningful characterization. Uh, and and the, the point is this, if, if, if you know someone more evil, uh, I want to see what they did. Uh, but I, I consider this person to have been pure evil. Go ahead. Say it again. This is a mental health issue. What would you like to see? What can they do to provide more resources, especially in schools? Well, it's the, the answer that I was given to this gentleman back here earlier, and that is something that we did talk specifically uh, in our meeting before coming out here, and that is, for one, uh, not just this community, but the surrounding geographic area uh, is lacking in a mental uh, health hospital or other physical facility. And th there literally are either no beds or inadequate beds to address those with mental health challenges. And uh, when you look at the population base and perhaps a growing population base in this geographic region, an issue that we will be taking up is going to be uh, what ways do we address mental health issues? Does it include a physical facility such as a mental health hospital? If so, how large would it be? Uh, things like that. So there's, there are many issues uh, for us to consider and evaluate uh, and to work on addressing. Speaker. Uh, Phelan wants to add more to that. I'd like to add to that. So in the last special session, we actually appropriated about $115 million in ARPA funds for the, child, the Children's uh, Mental Health Consortium to partner with campuses across the state of Texas, higher education. All right, so they're going over the budgetary uh, allocations that went towards mental health when asked about, what about mental health by the media? Because this is now, by the way, a common attack against Republicans uh, who who talk about mental health, and so now it's mocked by the gun control groups. When you offer thoughts and prayers, when you say mental health, they always say, or, or a good guy with a gun, they just, I know you have a word of mind. They, like, they just kind of regurgitate the statements back to you as if that's a counter-argument. And so that's what the reporter is uh, offering up there. So there actually was money put in the budget. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. This is really amazing. Beto. I mean, just what kind, of a, what kind of a jerk do you have to be to show up and disrupt a press conference? It's not even that it's a press conference. It's, it, it's more than a press conference. It's not like, uh, you know, hey, we're announcing some new legislation that we're looking to... No, it, th this is this is an update from law enforcement about a mass shooting at a school. And Beto shows up down there and starts yelling at the governor who he's running against. So it's a political event. And just... It's just disgusting. Um, also, out of the news conference... The shooter who murdered 19 kids, two teachers, injured 17 others at Robb Elementary School. You want to take a guess what I'm about to say? Was known to police. As they always are. As they always are. How many times do we go through this? Every single time. Known to police. For violent incidents with his family members. Washington Post reporting, quote, two months ago. 
The shooter posted an Instagram story in which he screamed at his mother, who he said was trying to kick him out of their house. High school classmate Nadia Reyes said, quote, he posted videos on his Instagram where the cops were there and he'd call his mom a B and say she wanted to kick him out. He'd be screaming and talking to his mom really aggressively. Next door neighbor Ruben Flores, 41, said uh, he lived next door to the family on Hood Street and tried to be a kind of a father figure to the shooter who had a pretty rough life with his mom. As he grew older, problems at home became more acute and more apparent to neighbors. He described seeing police at the house and witnessing blowups between the son and his mother. Multiple people familiar with the family said that the mom used drugs, which contributed to the upheaval in the home. Uh, the killer was also known for cutting his own face shooting at people with a BB gun and being a loner. He's originally from North Dakota, where he reportedly had a number of family issues there. So what do we always learn? There were signs, and he was known to authorities. Why do they keep talking about new things to look for New things to combat these shootings. New ways that we need to change things up in order to prevent the next one from occurring. When we don't even do the things that we are supposed to be doing well. We haven't even mastered the stuff that somebody came along and said, hey, you know what, maybe we should look for these signs. We haven't even mastered that. It's the same sort of idea with the, and this is the the, the chaotic mind versus the ordered mind kind of stuff. It's left and right. It is. I know I'm trying not to be partisan. I'm not being partisan. I I understand the politics of it, but this is psychological. The people who immediately in the aftermath of something like this start screaming that we have to do something as if we haven't done things already. We put all sorts of stuff on the books. We pass all sorts of laws. And then what happens to them? They just get ignored. It's the same beef I have when... You start growing government to do all these different things, and you lose sight of the core services. The primary objective, what is the primary objective? When you start asking yourself that question on everything, things start getting a lot clearer in your life. They do. They absolutely do. What's the objective? What am I doing this for? What's my purpose? What's the purpose of this endeavor? It clarifies, it focuses you. And, by the way, you're also more likely to be successful because you've identified your goal. Having goals, identifying them, and telling other people what they are help you achieve them. It's one of the secrets of successful people. It's true. Have a goal, write it down, tell other people. Because you never you never know who can help you get to your goal. You don't. Try it. Have a five-year plan also. I'm just giving out all this advice because I'm like, these are things that, that people taught me over the course of my life that have worked for me, and I want to give them to other people. I want other people to be successful and to be happy. A few months ago, the National Institute of Justice, which is the research agency of the U.S. DOJ, um, 
as well as the Violence Project, a nonpartisan nonprofit research center, completed what they called the most comprehensive study ever done of mass shootings. And uh, all right, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me go over here first to. Oh, it's Dean. Hello, Dean. How are you? Good, Pete. How are you? Hey, I'm all right. What question can I answer for you? <laughs> oh, I got way too many to even. But I was wondering what what can we do? I mean, what can you really do in your heart or ours to to you know to intervene to be an intervention? There was this gentleman that said he tried to mentor him. There was the grandmother who apparently was trying to control him. I mean, and you know, yet you can't. You know, what do you do? I mean, if if he's a bad person. I mean, uh, other than incarcerate him before he does a crime. Well, I don't think anybody could argue for incarcerating somebody before they commit a crime, unless you are talking about creating the uh, uh, a system that allows for involuntary commitment. No, no, I wasn't specifically saying that. I was just saying, you know, how can how can you shortstop it? How can you how could how could have this been? You know. I mean, how could it have been avoided? You know, you, you have talking points, and you gave us some good things, but you listened. You listened to those things about plans. If somebody isn't going to listen, uh, how do you impact them? So I didn't listen for a long time, so I don't know. Um, I will say that you're asking me to make some sort of pronouncement without information that we would probably need. Because right now, like in the course of the last half hour, I've just learned that he was known to police, right? Yes. So, th- so these are all these are all new pieces of information that are coming along. So, to answer your question, I would need way more information. But I kind of get the feeling that you're you're posing the question in order to kind of make a point that the, that you're not. It's not a question to get an answer so you can solve the problem. I don't think it sounds like a question designed more to to make a statement, but putting it in the form of a question so as to not have to carry the baggage or responsibility of making it as an assertion. No, I'm I'm searching as you and probably all of us are how to avoid this and that. And I I was just, you know, when you say the police and you know, maybe it's my contrarian or something, but I think of the the police are there to to protect us not to, you know, um, are they there to intervene before a crime or, you know, is it going to be another organization? I'm just I'm just trying to bring some clarity to how how you can where you can go or how how this can be you know accomplished so what do you think what, what do you think is the answer there then i i i, I really i i don't know that's why i was calling you i think it's in people's hearts more than i think it emanates from their hearts and it emanates from their minds and their their not only their psychological but physical structure and some are you know uh are it's it's going to happen and trigger in some people. And I, I don't know how you can, I'm, I'm trying to put in my mind how you can compromise between a free society, you know, that, that allows you the mobility to do make... You believe it, do you believe that there should ever come a point where somebody should uh, uh, could be involuntarily committed because they are a threat or danger to others and themselves? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, where's so so then the question is so the question becomes where's that line? Because forty years ago the line got obliterated when they shut down all of the asylums, right? When all of the institutions kind of when they emptied them all out, and it led to massive crime waves all around 
America. And uh, then there was a reassessment and a response to that. And that was the, you know, the 90s. And they started cracking down on the three strikes laws and all of that stuff. So, I mean, so, yeah. And, uh, Dean, I do appreciate the call. I think, though, that there is um, there is a debate that has to occur about where that line is. That has to occur. I don't have the answer for it. All right, let me get to a couple of uh, emails. Gary says, I was going to direct message you on Twitter, but evidently my Twitter account is now locked for telling a kindergarten teacher if they want to talk to five-year-olds about sex, they should be fired. But anyway, my wife teaches in a rural... <laughs> I think I saw that tweet. I think I may have liked it. Yeah, I think I, think I gave you a thumbs up on that one earlier. They locked you for that, huh? My wife teaches in a rural North Carolina county. Their school was built in the 20s. It's been retrofitted so that you, can, you cannot come directly into the school. The front door has a separate set uh, of doors added that you can't get through, and all the other doors require a key card to enter now. Um, on the the issue of copycats, um, Susan says uh, it works for peer suicides as well. That's true. Um, she says, I've had this conversation with several people. My uncle, a violent, paranoid, schizophrenic from his 20s, was institutionalized until he was in his 70s. I think, oh, here it is. I think it was the Reagan era when the mental hospitals were closed and inmates were put on the streets. We're seeing some of the results of that fatal decision now. First email I got this morning was ban the guns. Don't we need to go to the roots of the problem, mental illness, instead of worrying about a useful tool that can be used for good or bad? When Jesus and his parents were shooed off to Egypt because King Herod wanted to kill him, the Romans slaughtered all the babies in that town with their swords. I don't remember people rising up to ban swords. I don't either, but that was before my time. So, (laughs) Uh, let's see here. Joseph says, every mass shooting incident is an opportunity for the left to advocate for confiscating guns from law-abiding citizens. That way they can send the woke mob to the suburbs instead of them breaking the same Starbucks windows in Portland over and over and over again. (laughs) If we have $40 billion to send to Ukraine... We have money to secure and provide armed law enforcement personnel to our schools, which can be done without much trauma to the students. Um, Then there was another one here from Mark who said, Pete, listening to you talk about that retired Secret Service agent, it is frustrating. After a shooting a few years ago, I I, uh, also started developing my own device for schools. I worked with law enforcement officers as I did church security at a high school. I have spent a lot of my own money to develop the product, currently paused as I'm trying to find a way forward. The biggest challenge I ran into is bureaucrats. The school district where I did the testing said that the state would object because they require barricade devices be able to be unlocked from outside the classroom. Just in case a student locks out a teacher. Same school removed bathroom door entrances from hallways to prevent bad behavior. Thanks again for your show. That's from Mark. I appreciate that. All right, so um, this was from Jim Garrity at National Review today talking about the Violence Project and the National Institute of Justice put out a massive comprehensive study, most comprehensive study ever done of mass shootings from 1966 all the way to 2019. Here's among the report's conclusions. Persons 
who committed public mass shootings in the U.S. over the last half century were commonly troubled by personal trauma before their shooting incidents, nearly always in a state of crisis at the time, and in most cases engaged in leaking their plans before opening fire. Most were insiders of targeted institutions, such as employees or students, Except for young school shooters who stole the guns from family members, most used legally obtained handguns. Handguns. Nearly half of individuals who engaged in mass shootings told about their plans, leaked their plans in advance to others, including family members, friends, colleagues, as well as strangers and law enforcement officers. Half. So there's a good way to reduce school shootings, as long as that's the objective, right? If that's what we're trying to do, seems like this would be a pretty good way to take half of them offline. Um, Notably, most individuals who engaged in mass shootings used handguns, 77% of the known mass shooting cases. 77% of those who engaged in the mass shootings purchased at least some of their guns legally. Based on what we know of mass shootings over the past five decades, an assault weapons ban would not have prevented the majority of school shootings or mass shootings either. Now, what is interesting, though, is that the workplace shootings have declined, which might be an indication that the background checks are working because those are older people and they get caught in the background checks. But younger people do not. So maybe there's something there that you all could work on. Instead of go, you know, running to grab the guns, maybe work on that. Winterville's up next. Stick around. I will see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone. Mm-hmm.